When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We all come to our work from different beginnings and have to incorporate our backgrounds, who we are, into what we do. For Dr. Stefan Alexander, a professor of physics at Brown University who specializes in cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity, his origins, where he was born, where he grew up, are an integral part of the scientist he's become. There's a part of me that celebrates my outsiderness, the things that I bring to the table as a jazz musician, as well as, you know, somebody that grew up in the Bronx, um, you know, from a working class background, as well as a black man, a black person. Alexander's latest book is called Fear of a Black Universe, an outsider's guide to the future of physics. In it, he celebrates his outsider status and uses it, along with his strong research background, to tackle some of the biggest questions in physics today. Like, what is dark matter? The stuff we think makes up the majority of the matter in the universe, but don't fully understand. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, a conversation with physicist, author, and jazz musician, Stefan Alexander, about his latest book and his work. That's next. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Dr. Stefan Alexander is a theoretical physicist specializing in cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity at Brown University. He's president of the National Society of Black Physicists, and he's also a jazz musician born in Trinidad who grew up in the Bronx. His latest book is called Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. Professor Alexander, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to start off with the title of your book, Fear of a Black Universe. Can you talk about where that unusual title for a physics book comes from, the inspirations, and how it ties into the main themes of your book? Sure. Well, I was heavily influenced as a young person by Public Enemy, um, especially the album Fear of a Black Planet. And, you know, one of the themes of that album was mainly to serve as inspiration for young Black people to sort of elevate, to sort of get to the next level. And so I wanted to kind of inspire the next generation of young scientists in general, especially young scientists of color, by inspiring all young scientists to not be afraid to explore ideas that may maybe even get them kicked out of the club and not as be as respected. 
and to also celebrate, um, you know, a legacy of scientists such as Albert Einstein and Emmy Noether and others who actually did explore such ideas and took those types of professional risks to take their science to the next level. Throughout the book, you weave in a number of cultural references. The painter Basquiat is named in one chapter. Yeah, that chapter was entitled, If Basquiat Were a Physicist. That chapter took me back to when I was a kid in the Bronx, watching and experiencing all the graffiti art that was on, on the subways and elsewhere that was seen to be a form of vandalism at the time. You will see you know, graffiti art in very prestigious art museums now. And so the idea is I wanted to kind of reimagine physics and the ideas in physics that may, today may seem to be a bit crazy as the ones that might actually be the norm. Let's get into the science a bit. You start out with this statement that a large percentage of the matter in the universe is actually invisible, and we're not even really sure what it is. And I think many people will be surprised by that if they're not familiar with so-called dark matter and dark energy. Can you talk about what dark matter is, what fascinates you about it, and, and why you actually devoted much of your career to studying this? In our own galaxy, the gravity that controls the motion of our solar system and the stability of its orbit to keep our solar system in its orbit, we're missing about 85% of the matter, meaning that that matter is invisible. And we call that invisible matter dark matter. We know it exists because of our solar system's motion and the motion of our Milky Way galaxy, but 85% of it is invisible. And so the thing that's really cool to me as a scientist is that we get to be detectives in a lot of ways. So what is its character? What is its identity? How does it relate to the visible universe? Can we quantify it? Can we write equations? We love to work with beautiful equations um, in, the, in the spirit of the, the beauty of, like, say, Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. So whatever theory that kind of extends itself to incorporate dark matter, whatever it is, is it also going to be beautiful or is it going to be something that's not beautiful, quote unquote? I find it fascinating that uh, mathematicians and physicists use the word beautiful almost more than advertising executives or graphic designers and artists. It's very interesting for the uninitiated to see that adjective used in that way, uh, a beautiful equation. By beautiful, sometimes I mean elegant, for example. All of the motion that, that's due to how airplanes fly, to how the Earth goes around the sun, all the way up to how the solar system works, right? All yeah. of that can be described by three letters and how these three letters relate to each other, which is force, the mass, and acceleration. And the interrelationship in one simple equation characterizes a myriad of phenomenon, pretty much all gravitational phenomenon known to us, with exception, of course, the dark matter. So what is your book about, would you say? It's about a couple of different things, including 
things that I didn't even intend it to be about. I wanted to mimic art. Good art is something where you look at it and you may draw your own interpretation from it. So it's going to be interesting to me to see what the book meant to different people. And I'm already hearing from, from friends what it meant to them. But for me, it really, the book is an exploration of the cutting edge ideas and challenges that we are facing in physics. And I get at it by kind of exposing my own limitations, my own ideas about what that might look like, what potential avenues in addressing those problems might look like. The, the pressure that sometimes a young scientist may face in exploring ideas, there are certain penalties that may come um, if you pursue certain ideas or avenues. So in the book, what I try to do is to make physics accessible, this, these modern ideas in physics accessible, talking about three principles, and then using these three principles to guide the reader through um, these fundamental questions. And one principle is emergence, the idea that you can have a new phenomena that emerges out of simple, more simple constituents. So when we think of like the idea that we can break down matter into atoms and subatomic particles and understand our physical law that way, emergence is the reverse of that, which is that these atoms can come together and create new laws. And I think that exploring that idea is going to be a big part of our future in physics and science and technology. The subtitle of the book is An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. Now, you're a professor, you're an established, respected author, an insider, really. But as a Black scientist and as a young person starting out, did you feel like an outsider in the world of theoretical physics? And I'm wondering how that impacted your work. There are definitely moments, um, and still are moments, where the category of my race and my socioeconomic background and my personality, all these things, um, definitely places me to sometimes feel like an outsider. What I want to do, though, is to generalize and, and use that word um, in an empowering way, because I also recognized throughout my career that there were others that felt like outsiders as well for other reasons. And that, in fact, like we all have a part of us that where we would feel like an outsider, um, especially in the scientific realm that I'm intimate with. So the book was also about the celebration and the benefits of actually embracing those outsider feelings. And the book explores exactly what those benefits are. You write a lot about how researchers need to be asking the bigger, maybe even academically risky questions. And I'm wondering where that instinct comes from and why you think that's important. Yeah, that instinct comes from, um, I think, many sources. Most immediately, my upbringing. I was a teenager in the Bronx in the 80s, and at that time, hip-hop culture was flourishing in my neighborhood. And... When you look at sort of the elements that gave birth or, um, or elevated that culture, there was a lot of risk taking. There was a lot of bringing together different cultural components. Also, like, you know, later on in my career, a professor that was very influential on me was Chris Isham. I mean, he was a mathematical 
wizard, basically. But he pretty much told me to throw away my physics books and start, you know, really sharpening my intuition by engaging with him in dream analysis. So there was always this, you know, encouragement to take risks. Up next, Alexander discusses how outside influences can be an asset in any field by encouraging an interdisciplinary mindset. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Something that surprised me in your writing was that you talked not just about asking the unconventional questions, but also using unconventional methods uh, like dream analysis, like Zen Buddhist meditation, or even musical influences um, and bringing your jazz music background into your work to, to answer big questions. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, that extra stuff, it's more like you know, if, you're, if you're a painter and you have a palette of some colors and you're painting with it's about widening that palette of colors. But in, in this case, if I already have acquired the basic skill sets as, a, in my case, theoretical physicist, there were three things that I engaged in on top of my traditional training that really helped me um, in my theoretical physics research. The, the dream analysis I was engaging with with Chris Isham, you know, the jazz improvisation practice that I was engaged with, and also um, the Zen Buddhist practice. I think that in all these three things, there is an engagement with your creativity and your intuition. Um, in the case of jazz improvisation, you're challenged to play something that's musically meaningful in real time. And I think like being on that razor's edge has really allowed me or enabled me to take that form of creativity into how I ask questions, into how I may enable or entertain ideas that just may be wrong. But knowing what to do with that wrong idea is something I very much enjoy doing in my theorizing. Well, I feel like the tension is that when you grow up as uh, thinking of yourself as an outsider, in a very academic field like theoretical physics, you may be hesitant to use techniques or methods like throwing out the physics books or turning to meditation or trusting your dreams to help you with your theoretical physics analysis. And yet you got to a point where you were confident enough and you had leaders inspire you to say, you're good enough. You belong. Now think outside the box. That's right. That's right. So Professor Leon Cooper was a great example of this, who won the Nobel Prize. So he's very much in that respect an insider. But he moved into different fields like neuroscience, like artificial intelligence, and then brought some of those tools from his traditional training into these other fields. I also looked to people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane, who, again, after 
mastered a particular form of jazz, moved into something else, right? So I think that for me, um, I had, I guess, good examples. It sounds like one of the areas you've been challenging your colleagues to do is to think more outside the box, including taking that interdisciplinary approach to theoretical physics, not being afraid to reach out to colleagues in other departments like biology. Can you describe how you've worked across disciplines and why you think that's so important? Working across disciplines is extremely important to me, and I think extremely important to my field, simply because so many of the great ideas were a product of having worked across fields. So, for example, you hear about this Higgs mechanism, the Higgs particle that was recently discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. That's something to do with high-energy physics. But it turns out that some of those ideas were inspired from superconductivity, which has to do with, you know, superconductors and metals, low-energy physics. Throughout my research career, I have gained a lot of joy from using tools and techniques and ideas from one disparate field in my field. And one place where that's most active these days is taking ideas um, of condensed matter and solid-state physics and transporting it into astrophysics. Yeah, I'm thinking in the book when you connected with colleagues in biology to ponder the role of biology in physics, or the role of physics, rather, in biology, actually. For example, the um, biological physics idea I'm working on with my colleague Salvador Almagro Moreno, the biologist, say the thing we're talking about now, which is the connection between cosmology and the emergence of life in the universe, we call it the cosmic biosphere. It, It isn't only whether or not that idea is correct, it places us in a place outside the box. And it allows us, it's a methodology to generate new questions, new approaches in our own respective fields. So there's something about when you engage in this kind of cross-fertilization in these different fields, there are going to be some interesting, unexpected surprises that may come about or not. But, you know, it's a risk worth taking. Yeah. Given that you've been working in theoretical physics for quite some time now, and you've seen a lot of change in the field, you've seen a lot of discovery, thinking of Higgs in 2012, and you even mentioned the future of physics in the title of your latest book. So I'm wondering if you can give us a hint or an inkling at where you think physics is heading next. How long before we figure out what that dark matter and dark energy is, do you think? For dark energy, I think it's going to be a while. That's a pretty deep issue. But I'm confident and optimistic that we'll figure out dark matter within the next five years. Five years? Yeah, that's just the optimism. Well, can you tell us uh, what you're working on now or next? I'm working on a number of things, but one of the things I'm excited about is a modified version of Einstein's theory of gravity called Chern-Simons Modified Gravity, something that I pushed earlier on in my career, and just working on teasing out new ways of being able to confirm this theory. And if, if that is confirmed, then it'll be a bona fide modification of Einstein's theory of general relativity that includes effects, actually, of dark matter. 
Wow, that is so exciting. Can you sort of give us the Cliff's Notes on what that means? Yeah, this theory does have a natural extension and a natural home in string theory, actually. But you can see its effects basically in terms of gravitation. And one way it distinguishes itself from Einstein's theory of gravity is that it has a property that Einstein's theory doesn't have called chirality, which basically it's able to distinguish the handedness in gravitational systems. The same way like your right hand looks like your left hand when it's faced in a mirror. So this theory of gravity is able to distinguish right-handed systems from left-handed systems in a way that Einstein's theory of general relativity can't do. Dr. Stefan Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. That was theoretical physicist Stefan Alexander. His latest book is Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Our sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Our producer is Caitlin Nicholas. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. And I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.